Alrighty, we want to welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Um, today we are having an episode where we are going to be uh, talking about um, does science confirm the Bible? Uh, now, as many of you guys know, um, I am a Vantillian presuppo- uh, presuppositionalist, but um, I do enjoy um, immensely looking at science and looking at how it confirms the truth um, of the Bible and how true, observable, uh, empirical science uh, actually confirms what we do actually see in Scripture. And so um, today, I, a friend of mine and another Christian, um, Andrew, has uh, joined uh, in on the broadcast. And uh, uh, him and I are, are going to do a discussion on uh, some of the uh, uh, the aspects of science uh, in relation to the Christian worldview. And so I want to welcome Andrew um, to the show, and I'll let him go ahead and briefly introduce himself and uh, give some of his own credentials. And, uh, and then we'll jump into it, and we'll start the discussion. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, as you said... Um... I've been a Christian my entire life. I've I'm, uh, been, uh, I go to a Lutheran church. I've been in a Lutheran church my entire life. And um, the areas that I, uh, my formal training is in physics, my undergraduate degree, and then my master's degree is in electrical and computer engineering. Um, so areas I've worked in in physics are things like condensed matter physics and uh, other and in my engineering training, um, areas like signal pr- signal processing, uh, speech recognition, and signal processing, and, and those types of problems. Um, and uh, yeah, I I have a deep interest in things like philosophy, theology, and uh, and of course science, and discussing those, and uh, and talking about them, and so forth. All righty. Well, uh, Andrew, I think you had a uh, presentation uh, that we were going to kind of start off with where we're going to discuss some of the things that atheists um, and non-believers often talk about when it comes to um, uh, attacking the Christian worldview. And in many cases, um, atheists and unbelievers will go to, uh, frankly, it's in... uh, my my belief it's a misconception of uh, quantum mechanics, and they will say that this is a violation of the second law of logic, the law of non-contradiction. And so we wanted to, I think, uh, kind of jump into that and kind of discuss that um, a little bit more and talk about uh, probability and statistical uh, mathematics and uh, look at the... Um, the concept that uh, that at the quantum mechanical level uh, of the universe that uh, that contradictions can actually be true is that uh, is that correct, Andrew? Yeah, I wanted to talk a, a bit about that because there's some misunderstandings here um, about the nature of quantum mechanics, and I should point out um, my training in quantum mechanics is I took two semesters of it as an undergraduate my senior year. So um, I'm not an expert on quantum mechanics, although I do have some training on in the topic at a collegiate level. Um, can you see my screen? 
Yes, yeah, I can. Okay. So um, the main thing I wanted to point out is that it does not violate the law of non-contradiction. So when we're talking about quantum mechanics, we have to talk about whether you're whether you're considering the electron prior to or so if we're going to talk about electrons and their properties specifically we have to talk about whether we're talking about prior to or after a measurement okay because prior to a measurement uh the wave function is in effect um and after it it collapses um so prior to the measurement mathematically the way we understand it from things like double slit experiments is that an electron has wave like properties <clears throat> however after you go ahead and measure it, it collapses down into a particle or has particle-like properties. And therefore, an electron is not a, a wave and it is not a particle. It's neither of those, but it just has properties of those things depending on when you pre-measurement and then post-measurement. So as far as violating the law of non-contradiction, an electron is an electron. An electron is not a particle. It is not a wave. And it's just simply has the properties of wave or particle depending on when you measure it. Does that make sense to you, Jason? Yeah, ab absolutely. And does not our own interaction with electrons in the process of measuring them um, have uh, uh, is, is actually an interaction with them? and uh, causes them to react in a particular way. Uh, for example, is it not true that the more precise we, we co go into measuring the position of an electron, uh, the, less, uh, the more uncertain we are about its velocity, and the more precisely we measure its velocity, uh, the, less, the more uncertain we are about its position. Is that correct? Yeah, you're just, um, we would say momentum which is just mass times velocity but it's a very close metric um but yeah what you're stating there is the uncertainty principle basically yeah. the heisenberg uncertainty principle and that's exactly correct and you know if anyone wants to say that at the quantum mechanical level non-contrad or contradictions exist um i i think they they not understanding the the fact that measurement of in quantum mechanics measurement is everything. And, um, one, you get certain behavior prior to a measurement. And then after measurement, you're, you're the act of measuring it influences it. Um, and, and that's where people tend to get confused. Well, and I think we were talking about this before. It's really it's it it's making a category error. It's it's mixing a priori with post priori. I mean, it's saying that that the uh, the the measurement, the result of the measurement um, at that point is equal in its improbability to uh, the a priori probabilistic nature of whether um, uh, of of its of its wave function. Is that correct? Right. So. For example, um, when you're talking about quantum mechanics, not to get too technical, but you have to get a little technical, is we have something called the Schrodinger equation, which is really just the Hamiltonian um, operator, which basically relates the uh, relates total energy to kinetic and potential energy. And what happens is, is there's a lot of solutions to the, the Schrodinger equation. Um, a ton of them, 
actually an infinite number of them. And when, um, and we know that different solutions to that equation are, uh, have different probabilities associated with them. One uh, solution to it is more likely than another after a measurement. And so after you measure an electron, what ends up happening is one of those solutions ends up being the solution. Um, however, and it's based on um, the, the measurement that you're doing. And there's a certain probability associated with getting a particular solution. And, and I know this is getting very technical, but it's important to understand that there is no violation here of the law of contradiction. Um, and typically, if someone took a course on it, really understood um, what it means to solve a partial differential equation, <laughs> uh, they, they would understand that there, that is not what's happening here. Um, and then again, I'm not trying to sound too technical. I just, but quantum mechanics is very mathematical and technical. It's very difficult for people who don't have a lot of mathematical training to, to really grasp all of its intricacies. Well, and even from a philosoph, I'll purchase a little bit more from a philosophical aspect. But the the question I would have for somebody that that insists that the that quantum mechanics uh, violates the second law of logic would be okay. Does that then do? Can contradictions be true within your worldview? Uh, can things that are contradictory uh, actually be true? And what I've typically encountered is that they will arbitrarily uh, draw a line somewhere. They'll say, well, within the macro, you know, within, within my particular level of reality, um, contradictions cannot be true. Uh, but at the quantum level, at the, at the micro level, um, the uh, contradictions, you know, obviously can be true because I affirm that in quantum mechanics, uh, there, uh, there is a true contradiction. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, that, and from a philosophical aspect, that's just arbitrary. Why? Yeah, are you and I, I think you're going to have a lot of problems if you did that. I don't know how quantum mechanics itself becomes valid anymore because um, you're going to have to. If you take that position, okay, you're going to have to reformulate a lot of the mathematics by which quantum mechanics is based on. And in that reformulation now, you've redefined quantum mechanics and whether, it, whether that redefinition even attaches to or describes reality or the experiments we have at the quantum mechanical level anymore, it, it becomes very questionable. Um, I, I don't know how you can proceed forward with a claim like that because you're using, you're saying, well, there's this result from quantum mechanics, but then... Uh, you assert something that it doesn't state, and then, but then, how are you? You're, you're using the thing that you, you're coming. You're in a mess there. Yeah. Well, my 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 response to that would be is you collapse the scientific method. How can you ever know anything is true or false anymore at the quantum uh, level anymore in any experimentation? Because if something's a contradiction, well, maybe that's simply just true. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I think you're I, gonna have, I think that has real problems. Real problems. Yeah, it has massive problems. I mean, uh, if, if you actually acknowledge a, a contradiction, a, a true uh, a 
uh, a can both be a and not a in the same time and in the, in the same place. If you acknowledge that that is true, you've collapsed any sort of scientific investigation, even at the quantum level. You can't you can't know whether anything is true at that level or not. Well, and the other thing I was going to point out is is um, something can have multiple properties. Something can have properties of different things, but not be just one of those things in particular. Like, for example, if I was, um, if I lived, spent a bunch of time in Britain and I developed a British accent, I could say one of my properties is a British accent, but I, but that doesn't mean I'm any less of an American. Exactly. You see what I'm saying? I'm still an American with a British accent, you know? No, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Electrons are, are not, is not, it, it's a particle wave. That's why a lot of physicists even refer to it as a particle wave. Um, it, it takes upon, it has properties of both, but it's really neither. Yeah. It's its own entity. It's a unique thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Physically, you know. Yeah. Um, did you also have uh, some stuff that you wanted to talk about with, um, on, on, uh, the concept of uh, maximal certainty and probability. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have my screen here? Uh, I do not see it right now. I think you might have to. Well, wait, wait a second here. How about now? Yep. Okay. Okay. We got it. So there's a couple things that I wanted to talk to you about and kind of get your reactions to. Um, let me ask you this question uh, off the bat. And this is one thing I, I don't understand. Before. It's, it's lead up to this. Um, a lot of atheists will talk about um, reality or that they're uncertain of, of a bunch of stuff in, in the world. So there's some, uh, they're not certain that they exist. They're not certain that, you know, uh, we're talking right now. They're, they have all this uncertainty built in. And one thing I struggle with to understand is, and I kind of like to hear your thoughts, Jason, is if someone claims there's an objective reality out there, so there's some reality that exists out there apart from my thoughts, my feelings, it exists out there, it's real, yet they constantly claim that nothing can be known for certain, is that what I'm trying to figure out is, is, is that a subjective reality then for them? Or is that a distinction without a difference? What I'm trying to understand is, is how one can assert that there's an objective reality, but I can't personally be certain about any aspect of it that aren't function doesn't functionally you have a subjective reality. Yeah, I mean, I, what's your thoughts on that? I, I'm trying to wrap my brain about how someone can claim there's objective reality, but then claim I can't be certain about anything in that certain about anything. Well, and and it's actually uh, they're they're subjectively because if they're going to stay consistent, they're subjectively claiming there's an objective reality, uh, and that's that's self-refuting. Uh, that's no longer objective, and that collapses to a subjective reality, which is really what that happens. Is that really ultimately? it collapses into what is known as solipsism um, that uh, that you can't even know because at that point, if, if they're absolutely uncertain about everything and they're, and the thing that is really 
philosophically untenable is they're they're certain about that itself, but they're not certain about anything. They collapse into solipsism because at that point, if you don't have certainty about anything, if you don't have certainty about objective reality, then you have no idea if you're a, just a brain fo- floating in a vat being fed um, uh, a reality around, you know, you, you have no idea. You don't even know if you truly exist. Um, well, and and, can, that, and can, it just collapses at that point. Could, is there such a thing in your mind? At, is there any way one could take the position that there's an objective reality? They assert that, but then later say, I'm only maximally certain or less than 100% certain about the world around me. How is that functionally not subjective reality? That is subjective reality, and it's a contradiction. It's an inconsistency. You can't affirm objective reality and at the same time say that you're not certain about anything. Um, that is a, that is a contradiction because an objective reality is that which is true outside of yourself. Right. Um, and so therefore to then say that, uh, I cannot affirm anything as being true outside of myself is a contradiction of terms. So it is a collapse. It, it collapses into solipsism, uh, it, it total nihilism and, um, and that's why it's really untenable. At that point, this is why I challenge atheists, is that if you collapse to that particular point where you're, you're an epistemological, moral, nihilist, you, you don't, uh, there, there's, you're an objective nihilist, you can't, uh, you're, you're, you've collapsed into solipsism. At that point, you, you, I don't even know how you interact with other human beings. Uh, you, you can't, from that particular worldview, even interact with people outside of yourself. Yeah. Because you have no idea whether their subjective reality matches with yours. You have no idea whether their best guesses about reality um, is, is congruent with yours. Um, and why, why are you so arrogant to think that your asserted subjective reality is better than somebody else's asserted subjective reality? Yeah, and what I wanted to show here is that um, I think even when they use the term, and I'm still working out some of the details here. Um, I have to think about this thoroughly here. I don't know if you can you still see my screen? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the you know you have this when we're talking about probability models, we're talking about models that we create prior to taking a measurement or prior to an event say, for example, coin flip or something like that, you generate 50% for heads, 50% for tails in advance of the experiment. Then statistics is where you take and you do that experiment over and over and over again, and then you observe several, many, many trials about it and record the outcome of all of those trials. And then you can feed back those results into your probabilistic model, for example, to try to predict what's going to happen the next time. But probability is always discussed in the regime of, or in the case of prior to the event happening, prior to a particular event. It's a predictive thing. And statistics is always just basically counting up or observing what happened. And in probabilistic theory, as we currently have it formulated, typical common, now, we could talk about this a little, but there are some probabilistic theories out there that may relax these axioms, okay? 
And how many applications there are for um, the mathematics where these axioms are relaxed, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise at all. Um, however, every area I've ever worked in has always affirmed these three axioms, things like uh, quantum mechanics, um, information theory, etc. And so it, I've heard this concept it, you know, some people call it maximum certainty. Some people call it, I, you know, most likely probability or whatever. Is that they they posit this claim that they can't know anything with one hundred percent certainty outside of them. And so, what ends up happening is, is mathematically, they have to if they're going to develop or have any useful outcome from that or taking that position. They're going to have any useful model, mathematical model or, or whatever development that they're going to create as a result. They have to be able to show that that leads to good consequences that are attached to or bound to um, the physical world. I mean, in other words, they, when you create some set of mathematics, um, I can create axioms all over the place. But the question is, is when you work out the consequences of those axioms, do they comport with reality and experiments in any way? And am I making sense so far? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so when you're talking about the three axioms of probability, if you are going to assert that there is no such thing as uh, probability one, that is 100% certainty of something, then I think by consequence, you have to relax uh, the second axiom of probability theory as we generally use it. And in other words, if the probability of an event is bound between zero and one, now you're no longer going to be able to assert that as an axiom, and you're going to have to change that one to some other number less than one. Okay? You yeah. follow me? Yeah, absolutely. Now... When you, you can't do use that, one anymore in there. What's that? You can't use one anymore. You can't use one anymore because the probability of any event is no longer uh, certain, right? Yeah. So when you go ahead and change that axiom effectively, now you're going to have to come up with a set of mathematical consequences as a result of changing that axiom. And then you're going to have to talk about how that's a more realistic or correct model based on experiment for other areas in physics that we have that rely on such an axiom. So, for example, in quantum mechanics, let me since we're talking about that, let me give you an example there. If um, if after you take a measurement of a, of an electron, okay. What happens as, is known as a collapsing of the wave function. What that means is that a solution to the Schrodinger equation gets picked out of the sea of possible solutions, and it becomes the solution to that, in that particular instance, with probability one. And in fact, mathematically, you introduce something, not to get too technical, but you introduce something called a, a Dirac delta function into the Schrodinger equation in order to pick out that solution. Basically, what that is, is it's a, a mathematical construct. It's a function that has no width but infinite height, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, now, what you're going to have to do is if you relax that uh, axiom, 
you're going to have to somehow show that there's actually a different function besides the Dirac delta function that you should be applying to the Schrodinger equation. And then no longer are you going to be picking out one solution. You're going to be picking out more than one solution yeah. because you have to account for this extra probability you're talking about. Now, if you're going to assert this and say that, well, I think that that axiom should be relaxed because nothing can be maxed, we can't be certain of anything, then you're going to have to change a lot of mathematical and uh, experimental data and, and work up some other theory about things. And I've never seen that done. It, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but maybe there's, you know, there's a lot of mathematicians and physicists, theoretical physicists out there who maybe have tried to relax these, these initial assumptions to see where they lead. And they'd have to show that somehow reality is comporting with those models, that mathematical development they're making. Sorry if I'm sounding. Am I sounding too technical, Jason? I don't. I don't mean to. But no, no. That's that's yeah. actually really good because um, if you fundamentally deny uh, that there is a certain reality, yeah, you can't. You can't ever come to a to to one. You can't ever come to there. So you're you're going to have. Uh, you've never abandoned the area of probability within the equation. You you've not abandoned that. You can't ever reach one. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, I would approach that even more, is that you are, you are still then saying, even if you would relax the equations uh, to allow for uh, probabilistic results versus a one definite result, um, if, if you would relax the equations to do so, then you would be saying that reality reflects this actual equation and this is something that we are, you know, uh, that uh, is is a correct um, a, a, a explanation of objective reality. And you will have to hold on to that as being something that you're certain that reality reflects this particular equation. Here's the thing. Philosophically, you can't abandon certainty. Uh, you can't because you're still going to have to assert that this here is a reflection of objective reality. Even, even if you take it to, uh, to even the results themselves only being uh, probabilistic, uh, something less than one. Yeah, and if, if it's less than one, I, I just don't know how you, you're going to have to develop a theory based on things being less than one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not the theories we work from. Like, for example... Yeah. The conversation we're having right now is being done over the internet. One of the backbone theories behind uh, the internet is information theory. Information theory, okay, things like you know entropy, Shannon's entropy, so forth. Not to sound too technical, but all of those things, uh, coding and decoding, for example, lost packets, um, all depend on. Uh, the fundamental axioms, those three axioms of probability holding. And you really can't get at, you're relying on those things being true to even have the conversation we're having right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's so many of these assumptions of absolutes and certainty that, that human beings have to assume uh, in order to react and, and operate and function within God's reality. Um, and this is why the, the assertion that 
that contradictions could potentially be true is 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 not is not tenable and it really collapses any objection even to the christian worldview uh often um unbelievers will say that they reject the bible because it has contradictions in it well if if contradictions can be true within their worldview then their objection to any contradiction in the bible collapses um and um but nobody functions that way. Nobody, I always use this example when I'm doing street witnessing. I, uh, I'll ask them if the laws of logic are absolutes. Uh, I've asked that question many times. And um, for most people that deny God, they will have to say no, or else I'm going to ask them to justify uh, the existence of these absolute invariant uh, transcendent uh, uh, laws. But uh, they'll often deny that they're absolutes. And so I say, you don't live your life that way. You don't, when you walk up to your bank teller and you ask them, and you think you have 100000 in the bank, and you ask your bank teller, um, uh, how much do I have in the bank? And she says, well, you only have $100 in your account. You don't say, okay, well, you know, that's true for you, but, you know, $100,000 is true for me. And, you know, and because contradictions could be true, you know, we're fine and just walks away. No, he doesn't live his life that way. They, they live their life as if as if uh, things are certain and they're going to react. Um, you know, there it's it's uh, for example, I think Robbie Zacharias uses the example, you know, uh, you don't step out into traffic thinking that uh, it can both be the bus and I at the same time. And in the same place, we, we don't live life that way and they don't live life in light of their claims uh, that uh, they don't have certainty about anything and that uh, they can't they don't even know if the laws of logic are absolutes. They don't live their lives that way and they can't. You, here's the thing. I believe now and often an attack that is made against the Christian worldview is that, well, you're just saying that you're certain about everything. No, no, no. We as Christians don't say that we're certain about everything, but we are certain about those things which God has revealed to us. And by the way, you as an unbeliever have also been revealed things by God of which you are certain about. A, you are certain of his existence. Uh, you are certain about things like the laws of logic, absolute morality, um, uh, the uniformity of nature. Uh, God has revealed these things to you so that you can know them for certain, so that you can function within his reality. Um, and you function as if they are absolutes and you are certain about them. But when you deny the foundation for those, uh, you have to go to those all being prob probabilistic guesses, which even Christopher, um, in our dialogue with him, uh, said that uh, that uniformity in nature, I believe, was the one that he said was was an educated guess. Yeah, and to, and to further state what you're saying, you know, in front of me I have a book that's called that I a class I took in graduate school called Probability, Random Variables, and Stochastic Processes. There are about a thousand pages in this book, and page one describes those three axioms. Um, what I'd like to see is if you're going to assert that those laws need to be relaxed. Now there might be some mathematic. Uh, I should point out there might be some mathematics that relate to those laws being relaxed. Um, however, I'd like to see uh, proof from somebody who asserts this 
on what um, how they're going to deal with the examples that are in this thousand page book that that when they cre- construct this new mathematical model, how those things uh, interplay with all the things and comport with reality with all the examples that are in this thousand page book, for example, you're, you're just not going to find it. You know, now there might be some branch of mathematics I should point out where they, as an intellectual exercise, they relax these things to figure out where where they lead. Um, we see this in mathematics a lot. However, whether those things have any real physical application, anything in reality, is a whole other subject. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can create uh, twenty-one dimensional space. Uh, we can throw the extra dimensions into our equations. That doesn't mean that they reflect reality at all. Um, I think you also had some more stuff on, um, uh, you had some stuff on, on the category error. I think, um, do you want to go ahead and touch on that? Yeah. Can you still see my screen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. See if I can. Okay. Um, one thing I, I encounter a lot when I'm dealing with, can you see this, uh, the screen that says ultimate category error. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. What I one area of that I think is interesting, um, and maybe I'd like to hear your thoughts on it too, is often when I um, I'm talking about people about these issues in my everyday life, I hear the charge that um, I hear this general charge that science disproves the Bible and that and so forth. And one of the major and I also hear out of a lot of atheists where they assert kind of this naturalism is the only uh, is the only thing that's there that's real. And what ends up happening is I think they don't really understand categories of of inquiry. And by that I mean um, science is designed, as you can see from this slide, to understand nature. That's what. That's what it's designed to do. Um, so, for example, you wouldn't use, let's take the illustration on the right-hand side there, science to, to interpret whether a screenplay is a good screenplay uh, or whether a piece of music is a good piece of music. Um, it's just not the domain of science. Yeah, you can measure certain properties of a musical score, but it's not going to tell you whether it's good or not. It's not going to tell you whether it's it's an emotionally touching piece, for example. You could try to measure certain things about the human brain while they're listening to music and so forth, but you're not getting at it's the incorrect tool to use to measure that category of, of learning and so forth. And you have kind of a similar thing with the Bible. The Bible is uh, um, true but it's not a scientific textbook in the same way this probability book that I'm holding is. Um, It's in the proper lens to view it through is through the lens of theology. Now that doesn't mean that um, we think it's scientifically inaccurate in any way. What it means is that when you study it and try to understand it, you have to use the proper tool. Does that make sense? Yeah, the the one thing that, uh, and you and I may have a little bit of a difference on this, I'm not sure, but um, uh, 
I, I from from my position is that I believe that scientific inquiry needs to presuppose the the Bible. So while I would acknowledge that the science that that the Bible itself is not a scientific textbook, I believe that uh, in anything that it touches upon that uh, that we would we would uh, look at scientifically, it's going to be true. Um, but it doesn't make arguments. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't tell us about energy and mass equivalency or anything like that. It doesn't make any sort of arguments for that. But bef- but because uh, the Bible tells us uh, and provides a foundation that there is a God who has created and that uh, he has established laws. For example, in in uh, Jeremiah 31, it says he has fixed the uh the the laws that govern the heavens and the earth and uh so so the bible provides the foundation so that i can know that there that that the universe does function and move forward consistently based upon the laws that are created by god so i know that um uh f equals ma or um, that E equals MC squared. I know that these particular laws uh, or the, these these ways that we describe our universe are are set by the creator, and I have a justification for why they are like they are. Um, and this would be um, kind of fall into the area of teleology, but but the Bible is the a priori, is the is the justification behind all these things, even scientific inquiry. If the God of the Bible was not the one who governed the universe, who, who fixed it and created it, uh, then we would have no grounding, uh, no basis to even engage in scientific in- inquiry. Because if, if everything is simply the result of random natural process, where do we get non-random, uh, immaterial, fixed laws by which the natural universe actually <laughs> obeys <laughs> why why would it why would it uh why would it follow something that's immaterial why would it uh function according to rules uh that are immaterial in nature but yet they don't seem to change they're immutable and this is a reflection of the character of the god of scripture so in for example in colossians chapter 2 it tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are, are hidden in Christ. So I wouldn't say that that's just theology. Um, I would say that that's, that's all uh, forms of human knowledge and inquiry are ultimately founded in Christ. Any fact that is true is true because Jesus Christ created it to be true. There's no brute fact out there. There's no fact floating out in, um, uh, in some in some space outside of God that is true, uh, regardless of God's existence or not. No, everything that exists is, is, uh, exists because God created it. Um, and, and Jesus Christ is the creator of it. So I believe all things that are true, um, are true because that is how Christ, uh, created them. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, I, I agree. Um, what, what I'm speaking about specifically is kind of the narrow epistemological regime that these different tools that we have at our disposal exist in. Um, 
I, I think that science is concerned with, let me put it this way. Science is, uh, science is concerned with nature. Okay. Absolutely. And understanding nature. It's not concerned with understanding the Bible. Yeah, I agree. So th- that's the point I'm making. So when you, when I hear this charge or objection that, you know, well, science disproves the Bible, it's like, okay, let's back up here and try to understand what tool set are you using to evaluate the Bible? That, that's what I'm getting at. In, in what way are, what are you, start, what's your starting point? Uh, and where and what are you using? And what you'll end up finding, I often find, is that people who haven't really thought through this issue very thoroughly will start saying, "Well, science is the basically they assert that that's the only way of knowing anything." Yeah, that is Sci- yeah. You know, it, it, across all disciplines, you know, yeah. scientism uh, is really what you would refer to that as. Science is the source of all truth. Um, and it's really uh, an untenable position because um, did you did you come to that particular truth claim scientifically? Um, and uh, would be one question I would have. Um, the other thing is that often unbelievers will say, for example, they'll make the category error that science disproves God. Okay, so I need an explanation. How would you perform a scientific experiment to prove the existence of a transcendental being. I mean, we can't put the essence, the substance of God in a test tube and, or examine it under a microscope. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a fundamental category error. Uh, God, by definition, because he is the creator of all things, obviously transcends his creation. He is transcendent. So there is no scientific you know i don't i don't find god's foot behind uh jupiter you know i don't i don't i don't uh i can't uh examine um with an electron microscope and and spot the substance of god um he transcends his creation he is not a part of it because he pre-existed it um and so therefore it's a major category error to make the claim that science itself disproves God. Question for you. How often do you encounter this in your, in your everyday life when you're witnessing to people? Because it seems to be, for me, it's something that people state often they haven't thought through the issue very deeply. And they, they're, it takes so much time to unravel that for someone who hasn't, done a lot of philosophical thinking and haven't had a lot of training to bust down that, that objection. Do you find that to be difficult in practice or, or pretty simple? Well, I mean, you can, you can typically uh, attack scientism pretty quickly. Um, You can ask them if they believe many things to be true. For example, do they believe in the existence of something called love? Okay. And how would you scientifically prove that? Um, that's a transcendental um, abstraction. It's a it's a it's conceptual in nature, but yet we all believe in it. Um, for example, you could ask them. Even I, I I love going to the laws of logic. Okay, do you believe in the laws of logic? Okay, how would you scientifically prove the laws of logic? Can you is are the laws of logic made of the material universe? Have you ever stubbed your toe on the second law of of uh, uh, of non or the law of non contradiction or the law of identity, 
um, have you have you uh, ever taken a plate of uh, of the law of excluded middle out of the fridge? Uh, no, you, you can't. It's not part of the material universe. So how do you how do you prove that scientifically? But yet you you believe in it. So that collapses scientism at that point, because then they are saying that there are things that are true outside of uh, the examination of uh, uh, of science. And here's the problem. The scientific process itself is a philosophical construct which cannot be proven scientifically. And if you did prove it with itself, that would be viciously circular. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed too, Jason, and maybe you notice this too, with people who make these assertions, when you start probing their theological knowledge on the Bible, um, you, you'll you'll come up empty. I find I found in my experience, um, you ask them even basic principles about what their understanding is of the Christian faith, they they mess it up. Um, you ask them anything even beyond that, you know, even the basics you'll get, you know, you know, not very good answers. Um, I noticed that people who make this assertion haven't really tried to use the tool that we use, which is theology, to understand the Bible primarily. They, they really haven't tried to use that tool at all to try to understand the Bible. I, I don't know if that's your, that no, is I, studying I, it and, and so forth. I, I agree with that. Most of the time when people attack the Bible, uh, in any way, most of it is completely out of sheer ignorance. Um, in, in fact, you know, I've been, you know, told, well, the Bible has contradictions, therefore I don't believe it. Well, the best thing to do with the individual who says that is ask him to point out just one. If the Bible is so full of them, point out just one, please just point out one. Now, atheists do have their lists that they have online, which have been addressed by most, um, you know, ha- have been addressed. But once again, uh, to to say that the Bible is false because uh, it has contradictions in it is to presuppose an absolute law of logic again, which you can't justify outside the God of the Bible. Uh, so it really it, the the objection collapses upon itself. Um, what's interesting, real quick, about what you said there too is those objections, for example, have been studied and talked about by theologians for yes. two millennia. Okay. Yep. And the answers that they have are extremely good, extremely consistent, extremely coherent. However, um, they'll dismiss that whole area of scholarship. They'll say, oh, all that scholarship is just woo. Okay. And then, but then they'll assert somebody like Dawkins or Bill Nye, the science guy, or (laughs) somebody like this as an authority on science. It's like, no, wait, we, there's lots of authorities in theology. Why don't you go and try to find out what, how they've handled these things, you know? And I, my, in practice, I never see them take the time to really study these guys. Never. No, no, typically they don't. And most of the, uh, especially in the atheistic community, is rabid skepticism uh, is typically what you encounter. If you would actually take their their skepticism to its logical conclusion with their rabid skepticism. They, they could not even, um, they could not even prove, uh, their own name. Um, you know, if you ask them, well, you know, what, what's your name? Okay. Prove it to me. Okay. Well, that's, you just showed me your license. Okay. Well, you, you would admit, right. That we can fake, uh, people have fake license driver's licenses. Right. 
well, yeah, well then how do you know that, uh, how do I know that yours isn't faked? Um, can you prove to me that your name is X, you know? Um, and that's the same rabid skepticism. If you take their skepticism when it comes to things about the Bible, um, and you apply it to other areas in life, they couldn't even function. Um, so they're, they're typically rabidly skeptical. One, I recently, I'll tell you this uh, brief story. I, I have a, have a friend of mine, um, good friend of mine that we go out to lunch uh, quite often, but he's an atheist. And, um, and, uh, I have presented the gospel to him several times. And in a recent conversation with him, um, I read to him, uh, Psalm 22, which is just an amazing, uh, uh, foretelling and, uh, prophecy of, of Jesus. And, um, for example, that Psalm talks about his, his garments being divided, uh, or, or being, um, cast lots for and uh, that his hands and his feet were pierced. Um, his his uh, tongue was uh, sticking to his jaws. It was dry. Um, it was, and, and in that beginning of that psalm, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the very first words of that psalm, which are exactly the words Jesus said on the cross himself. And I read him that text, and I read him Isaiah 53. And his response to that was, is that Jesus was just a man and he self-fulfilled those prophecies. He saw those, he read those, and so he he tried to set up a situation in which those were fulfilled. Uh, you know, so that they so that he would so I I said, so your your real assertion here is is that is that Jesus Christ got himself crucified and he he worked with the Roman soldiers to make sure that they cast lots for his garments. Um, he, he did all these things to set himself, uh, up as a Messiah figure. And, uh, that was what he said he wanted to hold to. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, one thing I, you know, uh, do you want me to move to the next slide? Cause I can make some comments about what you just said based on the next slide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Can you see that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that I notice, uh, especially in the atheist community, is that they really don't, uh, when you look at this slide here, I've really divided up the attributes of different types of science uh, that we do. Um, in general, can, uh, you hear this assertion or this thing called science but you really can't talk about science is a huge thing. It's a, it's a huge thing that encompasses a tremendous amount of different uh, uh, kind of epistemological methods inside of it based on what is possible and not possible given the data that we're working with. So if you look at this slide, I've kind of divided up things kind of in big Five, uh, five big categories. That would be, and, and these are in uh, decreasing uh, order of, of rigor and certainty. So at the very end of the scale, you have pure mathematics. From there, we get to theoretical or theoretical chemistry or theoretical physics. Where, um, So in the pure mathematical region, you're dealing with basically deductive reasoning. You're starting with axioms. And then from axioms, you're moving to proofs uh, based on those axioms, okay? And 
we know that when you start with a certain set of axioms, if the proof is correct and there's no missteps in the proof, that what you end up with is something that is a proof by definition, you know, not questionable. Yeah. And, and then you got the area of theoretical physics, maybe theoretical chemistry, where you're taking the proofs and axioms and the mathematical machinery developed in each one of these builds on each other, okay? Scientifically, there's a, there's, you build on, you use one to get to the next. And we build on those, those mathematical models to create models of the physical world, models, mathematical models that comport with experiments and so forth that we create. And there you're dealing in the realm of both deduction, induction, and abduction. And the models that we create in the theoretical physics regime, for example, must comport and confirm experimental results. If they don't, they're thrown out, okay? Um, they must have some explanatory power, otherwise they're not all that useful. Now, when we talk about theoretical physics and we talk about pure mathematics, everyone in science understands the distinction. Um, everyone understands when we're creating a mathematical world of the uh, mathematical model of the physical world versus just working with pen and paper math and working from axioms and trying to get to proofs. The line there is pretty clear. Same thing between experimental science, for example, and theoretical physics. Uh, the major thing we're doing differently there is now we're going to try to perform experiments, say, in a lab where things are carefully controlled, the initial conditions are carefully controlled. Uh, we're going to vary one parameter of the experiment at a time, not multiple ones. And we're going to try to reproduce that experiment over and over and over and over and over again repeatedly with keeping the conditions as controlled as possible to prove out, for example, that what we got in what we derive, the mathematical model we derive back in the theoretical physics world is confirmed with experiment. Now, this is where things get a little interesting. Then we move into this, these next two areas. And people use different definitions for this stuff. Some people will call this call experimental science, observational science, or whatever. But I'm making a clear distinction here on this slide. Is that an observational, when you're in a doing observational science, you can observe that the you can observe and measure things as the event happens, but you can't carefully control the conditions by which that experiment is happening, and in many cases you might not be able to reproduce it. So a good example of what falls into observational science might be something in astrophysics, where you can observe while it's happening a comet orbiting the Earth or coming near the earth, for example. We can observe that as it's happening, but we can't control anything about that experiment. We can't put the comet in a lab. Um, and as that event is unfolding, um, we can't reproduce it uh, like we can in a laboratory scenario. Now, those are two very, very different things that you're doing because of these attributes here. And to say that one is, you know, really we can lump these two things together and they're really the same thing is really uh, not correct. You can't do it. And furthermore, if we move on to the further on the scale, you have something called historical science. In that case, you can't even observe the event as it happened. You can only look at af the aftermath of it. 
And in that area of science, um, you're doing strictly a post-mortem analysis. So, yeah, I can dig up a fossil and measure it in five or six or seven or a million different labs, but I cannot repeat that experiment, and I don't really know the initial conditions of that experiment. I can only, and I can't control anything about it while it happened. The only thing I can do is look at the aftermath of that experiment and try to understand it. That is a very, very different thing than doing theoretical physics, for example. You follow me, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I think is a very common error um, from the unbelieving world, especially the atheistic community, is that there is a major category error. They, They don't make any distinction between uh, historical science, um, and, you know, all the way to, um, uh, theoretical physics, pure mathematics, experimental science, and observable observational science, they lump them in all together as one big homogenous group and they don't make any distinctions. And you, you cannot, you, you cannot, um, especially in historical science, historical science, there are many, many, unverified assumptions that go into that particular inquiry um, and the result that spits out of the other end um, is often uh, you know there's there's other things that could explain uh, that and a lot of times is the fallacy of affirming the consequent um, where there could be multiple explanations for a particular um, you know, thing that we observe as an aftermath, there could be multiple explanations, but they insist that this one is the only one that they will accept, even though there are others. Um, uh, I'll give an example that I typically do when I do a presentation on presuppositional apologetics. Uh, I give an example of the logical fallacy of affirming the consequent. And one of them that's very common among, um, among um, atheists is they will say, for example, they will say that um, that all uh, living things have DNA um, in them. And so, therefore, that means that there was a common ancestor. Well, that's the fallacy of affirming the consequent, because there could be other reasons why um, all living things uh, use uh, DNA as the coding structure. And it could be if there was a common designer also. But they simply dismiss that. They'll say, well, no, no, the only thing, you know, this confirms that evolution is true because because all living things uh, use the same uh, DNA molecule uh, for encoding information. So um, that is what I often see. And they, they, they have these assumptions and they lump them all together. Yeah, I see exactly the same thing. And I think there's two things I want to point out real quick that I was thinking of. Um, What's interesting too is is when you get back to this idea of bringing this full back full full fully back of of that you can't really know anything and you just know things that are maximally certain. Well, what you're really talking about then is the regime of somewhere in the pure mathematics and theoretical physics regime, right? But those are the most certain science we have. Okay. Yeah. They're the most rigorous and the most certain science we have. But then when you ask them about evolution, oh, that's just, a, you know, that's pure fact. Yeah. See? And yeah. they reverse 
they almost like they reverse what we know to be the true scale of rigor and they reverse it. They hold that things that are existent science, historical science are extremely rigorous and extremely yeah. certain, but everything over in this other area of pure mathematics and, and, and theoretical physics where we, where we assert things with probability one, well, that we can't know for sure. Yeah, know? that's actually, that's a very interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, they're really flipping it on its head. Uh, oh, no, we don't have any certainty about this stuff all over over here. You know, two plus two equal four. You know, while we're, we're, we're not, you know, quite to a probability of, of one on that, you know, <laughs> we're not quite certain that that's really true. But evolution definitely took place. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, that, that's kind of interesting how they've completely flipped that. Yeah, and I've noticed that this happens a lot. They'll they'll throw out, they assume that one big time. You know, like that one is like you got to show me overwhelming evidence to cast any doubt. And they they don't apply their skepticism evenly. Um, their their skepticism is very very uh, uh, it tends to be very very um, uh, what's the right word. In, in non-uniform, yeah. they, they'll apply skepticism where they want to apply it when it suits their needs, but they don't apply skepticism in, in what would even seem like the proper scale. Like on this slide, I would say things that we're doing in pure bath bags, theoretical physics, and experimental science are far more rigorous, far more certain, uh, and so forth. And and you you have to scale your your skepticism according to these categories, but they don't do that. Now, the other thing I noticed that they do is when they talk about things in historical science, it really undercuts their argument if they don't, they're not able to lump all of this together into the quote scientific category, because what they yeah. really want to do is borrow the rigor that we have in pure mathematics. They want to borrow the rigor that the certainty that we have in math, pure mathematics, and apply it to things that have far less rigor and far less certainty, like uh, you know macroevolution, yeah. and, and I believe the reason why. So what they so that's why it suits them not to make these distinctions. They these distinctions don't help their argument because what they want to do is borrow from things in theoretical physics and pure mathematics and apply that that certainty and rigor level to everything. You follow me? Yeah, and uh, most uh, many atheists will do that. When you try to make the distinction between historical and empirical observable science, they don't like that distinction. Uh, they will they will do everything they can to uh, argue about that, but uh, there is an obvious distinction uh, with that. They, you know, there's, <laughs> we, we don't look at past events, supposedly millions of years ago, um, in the same way that we uh, observe the reaction between two chemicals in a lab. There's no yeah. comparison. Yeah, there is no comparison. But what, what, what would you think their motivation is for this? And it's a strong desire that they have not to separate these things out. I've noticed this on, with atheists repeatedly. They, they hate it. You know, it's, it's like, you know, we can't talk about these categories that's just all science you know it's well, carte blanche acceptance yeah, it's a it's well the, first of all there has to be a recognition of the religious nature of atheism uh it's a religious pre-commitment 
Because if evolution collapses, if they don't hold to it as being something that they uh, are are certain about, um, then then uh, then their their religion collapses, their worldview collapses, their entire worldview is resting upon whether this is true or not. If that is not true, then they've got a lot of thinking to do. And so, so therefore, they're going to they're going to rigorously do whatever they can in order to to hold on to that and not allow uh, those distinctions to be made, because um, this fundamentally attacks uh, and collapses their worldview out from underneath them. So there's 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 emotional, <laughs> uh, you know, religious moral reasons for for why they hold to it, not not rational reasons. I, I don't believe they're logical reasons. Well, and the other thing is one pressed, if I show them this, uh, like, for example, I could show them this slide and say, okay, do you agree with these things? Well, yeah, they'll agree with it. But then they'll, then they end the argument by saying, but really, this is a, they try to make the argument, there's a distinction without a difference, or that, you know, it's really just all science. And they, they affirm it, and then they'll immediately deny that there's really any difference anyway. I've noticed this repeatedly. <laughs> Well, yeah. What what I've what I've heard some atheists say is that um, that you know they when they're when when people are perform or when scientists are performing scientific uh, going through the scientific process, they're not always making a distinction. Well, now I'm doing historical science. Now I'm doing empirical science. Now I'm doing uh, pure mathematics. You know, they're not making that distinction as they. Well, that may be that may be true. I mean, you're not you're not doing that. But there's many things that we do. Uh, from a day-to-day exper- uh, experience that from a, you know, we, we don't examine uh, the roots of absolutely everything that we do, but the distinction is clearly there. Um, and um, there, there's, there's, there's no way that one can say that this is a distinction without a difference to say that uh, performing a, an observable experiment within a lab to see how two chemicals react to each other is the same as uh, as, as looking to see if there's any sort of uh, uh, aftermath effects uh, of something that is presupposed to possibly have happened, you can't compare those two. Even now, what's interesting there too? Let me let me point out from from like let's take the field that I'm trained in physics. We talk about people being theoretical physicists. I am. They'll identify themselves as I'm a theoretical physicist. What that's telling the community is, is that they don't want anything to do with the lab. What yeah. they do is, is in an office with a computer and a piece of paper and a pencil, okay? And then you have other people in physics who will self-identify as, I'm an experimentalist. This is, or I'm an experimental physicist. And nobody in the community, if you were to use those terms, you know, I, I've walked around many physics departments and universities in engineering departments, same same distinction made in engineering too, um, and they identify this way, and everybody knows what they're talking about. And if you read a paper, I can tell within just by reading the abstract, you know, something in say, uh, you know, Physica, which is a popular journal in physics. Um, I can tell by reading the abstract whether we're dealing with the regime of, of theoretical physics or experimental physics in two seconds. Yeah, yeah. But but when you talk about this historical science thing, oh, that's really just experimental science. No distinction drawn there. 
yeah. which it's a complete double standard, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, I agree completely. So, alrighty. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew, for uh, joining us today. Um, I, this was uh, uh, very helpful and insightful. Uh, hopefully this was uh, helpful to some other people. So do you have any uh, closing comments that you want to make, Andrew, before we wrap it up today? Um, not really. I, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I think it was fun. And um, yeah, I, I hope some, some people who, uh, I hope some people can kind of think about these issues and, and start asking some questions to themselves and others and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, as Christians, our primary desire, um, is, is that through a discussion of these things that, uh, people would, would, uh, question their beliefs. Uh, they would examine the claims of the Bible, um, and that they would ultimately come to, uh, repentance and faith in Christ because, uh, uh, I make no apology. That is uh, that is my goal with um, with all of these things. Is uh, ultimately, I, I want people to come to uh, faith and trust in Christ alone. So, um, also Andrew, I believe that you had mentioned um, before that you want to have a discussion at some point on uh, Lutheran theology versus Reformed uh, covenantal theology. Is that something you still want to do? Yeah, that I think that'd be interesting and. Um... I'd I'd really like to ask you a lot of questions about covenantal theology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, what what we'll maybe do is um, I'd I'd like to maybe in two to three weeks I've got some other uh, uh, things kind of in the in the pipeline here. Uh, so in maybe three four weeks uh, we could maybe schedule uh, a discussion on that and uh, sure kind of go back and forth on that. So I, I look forward to that. So alrighty. So, uh, well, thanks. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, we're going to go off uh, the air at this time. So uh, those of you guys uh, uh, listening to this, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Lord willing. God bless. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? And through Adam's offense